Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Some of the greetings around the world, um, you know, you go to Brazil and they hug you and slap you on the back of the head. And uh, in France, you kiss on two sides. Uganda, they have this special handshake. So when you go from one country to the next, it can be really confusing because you go to kiss someone and that's not appropriate there. So, um, you know, it's kind of weird. I'm Doug Dorman. I'm one of the missionaries from uh, Seacoast. And next stop, Zambia. I uh, was able to uh, talk on the phone a few days ago with our host in Zambia who informed me there are two other nations, bordering nations, who are uh, ready to have us come in as well. So super excited uh, about the opportunity to train pastors internationally. Um, one of the things we do when we go into a different culture and train is we tell the folks, you are not the mission field. You are the missionaries, and we're here to train you so that you can go out into the nations. Uh, one of the interesting uh, thing along those lines, in Manhattan, 100 new churches have been started in the last few years by Africans who have come to start churches in America. About 75% of internationals that come to the U.S. Uh, are either Christian or will become Christians. Uh, I believe that uh, immigrants are actually the great hope for uh, re-evangelizing America. And uh, we have an all-nations cafe. I encourage you to get involved. 85% of internationals who come to the U.S. never get invited into an American home. Uh, let's change that, Seacoast. Uh, invite these folks into your home and uh, have a meal together. So today we're going to talk about relational conflict uh, and then. Relational conflict. Any of you ever had conflict? You know, anybody ever had conflict at home or, or maybe at work or school? Um, yeah. Anyone at home? Let's just start there. Yes, raise your hand. The rest of you must be single. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> you know, when it comes to conflict, it's inevitable. Conflict is inevitable, but it encourages us to keep moving to grow. Conflict is inevitable. It encourages us to keep moving and to grow. In Psalm 133, verse 1, it says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I was working about 22 years ago or 21 years ago in Savannah, Georgia. I was part of this church that had hired me to come and do off-campus small group ministry. In other words, I was to come in to a traditional church that had always done small groups in the building, and they wanted to reverse that and begin small groups out in the community. I said, no problem. That's what I've trained for. I'm here. I'm your guy. And we began the process after about a year Great progress was made. We saw many groups started. We had a system of accountability set up where we had a structure to really explode with growth. At that time, the pastor, Jim, called me into his office and he said, Doug, you've done a great job with our off-campus ministry. Now, I want you to turn your focus to Sunday school. To which I looked at him and thought several things that I didn't say. Uh, But I did say, I said, that's not what you hired me to do. You hired me to come and set up an off-campus deal, and you're going to compete with resources and people 
And if you do that, you'll kill the off-campus ministry. He said, let me make this really clear. You don't want to hear that from your boss. He says, let me make this really clear. Either you give attention to Sunday school or get your resume ready. I said, you know, I've always loved Sunday school. I thought it was a great idea. And uh, I, I think it's a wonderful program. And, and what actually happened through that process was uh, pretty cool. I was able to develop a system of, of mentoring and discipling and training that I use today, 20-some years later in the nations. Um, so God was at work within that. And about a year after I was obedient to my command, uh, he said to me the, the, at a staff meeting one day, he said, if you could do anything you wanted to do and knew you would not fail, what would you attempt for God? So I planned a church. And that church actually sent us out with a team and with resources to plant. And that obedience, that shift was that conflict, which was inevitable, if you work with me, uh, to, it encourages us to keep moving and to grow. So conflict isn't the problem. It's our response to conflict that either implodes or expands our life. Maybe you remember this uh, TV show, those of you who are over 22. Uh, good times, you know, everything was dynamite. And, and, and so it, it was this explosive excitement of the beginning. Your first fill-in this morning is good times, Barnabas and Saul, good times. Uh, we had some good times recently. Um, about a month ago, uh, Laurel graduated from CIU, and this was a uh, she, she graduated from the College of Education at Columbia with her master's. She'll be teaching second grade starting in the fall. We're super excited about that. I taught second grade, discovered I was called to something else. And uh, the, uh, Another one of our daughters has good times. This is, uh, she's the one being held. This is Corey. And uh, Corey's getting married next Sunday. And uh, this is Josh on the skateboard putting my daughter at risk and <laughs> so we're super excited this is these are good times these are good times these early days the beginning of something new um this next picture you may know the guy on the right okay who's this guy billy graham okay anybody know the person on the left okay no one did in the first service either this is john stott John Stott. John Stott was an Anglican scholar, graduate from Cambridge with a two double first, which means it's really important, in uh, French and theology at Cambridge. He, was, uh, he served All Souls Church in London for 50 years. Um, just an amazing feat. And he is one of the architects of 20th century evangelical Christianity. In 1953, actually, they, they had become friends. And in 1954, Billy Graham was trying to start his first crusade in London. And the British were not exactly welcoming of this American. They were very skeptical of Billy Graham. John Stott, realizing if his endorsement wasn't uh, put into action that would greatly limit Billy Graham's effectiveness. And so he stepped forward, taking a great risk as two men the same age in the early 30s uh, who, who said, I endorse Billy Graham. I believe he's legit. 
And because of that, it opened the door for Billy Graham to speak at Oxford and at Cambridge and to have 40-minute conference with Winston Churchill and a year later to meet with uh, the Queen Mother. It also led to the Herringay um, Crusade in 1954. They had rented out the uh, Herringay Arena, which would seat 12,000 people. No one had ever filled it more than one night. So he had rented it for a week, and the media, in skepticism, said he will be bankrupt in a fortnight. Well, that began, the crusade began in March. It went through March. It went through April. Not only did he fill the auditorium, he filled it every night. And by the end of the crusade on May, I believe it was 22nd of 1954, they had to move to Wembley Stadium, where they had 120,000 fill the stadium. Uh, here in Gay, I've been there, and it is one of the most diverse places on the planet, hundreds of languages spoken. And the, uh, you know, why do I go to the nations? I, I um, met a friend in Asia in 19, uh, 2008, actually, and I asked him, I said, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? And he said, Amsterdam, without blinking an eye. I said, Amsterdam. I said, why Amsterdam? He said, because Americans and Europeans have no clue how to reach the international immigrant population, which is flooding into Europe. He said, I know how to reach them. Fast forward. I was with this friend from Asia in Brazil last year, and I said, oh, by the way, any update on Amsterdam? And he looked at me and said, oh, yeah. He said, we've got 2,000 followers of Christ in Amsterdam now. And I said, you're kidding me, because I knew of people who worked in Amsterdam their whole life and had less than that. And I said, what happened? He goes, oh, we're reaching the immigrant population. We're doing house church movement through, throughout Amsterdam, and we're meeting in homes, and we're meeting in apartments, and nobody even knows we're there. Uh, great move of God. And, and if you're interested in that sort of thing, there's a guy named Timothy Tennant, T-E-N-N-E-N-T, Timothy Tennant. He's president of Asbury Seminary. And uh, Google uh, his video on the immigrant population um, he says 75% of those who are immigrants will either become Christians or are Christians uh, into America. It is the great hope of reaching our country. Uh, so good times. Good times are these beginning days, these early days. Um, you know, uh, John Stott recently died. I believe it was in 2010 at age 90. He was one of Billy Graham's closest friends uh, throughout life. At 86 years of age, he moved into this retirement home called the College of St. Barnabas. Um, well, we're going to look at Barnabas this morning. And in Acts chapter 9, look with me, Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 26, it says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, this is referring to Paul, who has recently been converted. He says, And when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. And they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him by and brought him to the apostles. Notice the words there, but Barnabas. It's kind of like, but John Stott. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenist. Uh, but they were seeking to kill him, conflict, 
And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, which, by the way, was his hometown. If you fast forward and flip over the page to chapter 11 of the book of Acts and look at verse 24, it gives us a little background about Barnabas. Now, he's introduced in chapter 4 of the book of Acts. And in the chapter, chapter 4 of Acts, it says Barnabas was also known as Joseph, and that his son, his name means, or they called him son of encouragement. And he was one who sold his, his uh, belongings, his property, and he gave the money to the church, gave the proceeds to the church. He was all in, definitely. And it tells us in chapter 11, verse 24, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas, now background here, Barnabas was in Jerusalem. Paul gets sent off back to Tarsus. Barnabas stays in Jerusalem for a period of time. Revival breaks out in Antioch. The the church leaders in Jerusalem send Barnabas to check it out. He goes, sees what's happening. People are coming to Christ. And he says, man, this would be a perfect fit for my old friend, Paul. And so we pick it up in verse 25. It says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Just point of clarification, Saul is the Jewish Hebrew name. The Gentile for the same name, the same name in, in, uh, among the Gentiles was Paul. So here he's referred to as Saul because he's in Jewish context. When he goes into Gentile territory, we know him today as Paul. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Christians before this time period were called followers of the way. After Antioch, it was a derogatory term making fun of them. Oh, you're little Christs. And uh, this was first, first happened in Antioch. Now, conflict is inevitable. It encourages us to keep moving, to grow. If it wasn't for the conflict in Jerusalem, there would not have been growth for Paul in his personal development. What happens is, it's like um, your second fill-in says, should be like this bumper sticker I saw recently. Shift happens. And, uh, you know, conflict occurs. It just does. And we see the seeds of that conflict in chapter 13 of the book of Acts. Now, these are heady days. Exciting things are happening. The church is growing. People are coming to Christ. And the church in Antioch says to Barnabas and to Paul, we want to send you out to the Gentile world. And we pick that up in in verse 4. It says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they came to Cyprus, which, again, remember, this is where Barnabas is from. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. Now, John is also known as Mark. And uh, John Mark, it says, When they had gone through the whole island of Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, a magician, for which is the meaning of his name, opposed them. Conflict. 
seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. Now, let me back up a bit. Paul had not yet read how to win friends and influence people. And so he says, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. I mean, imagine doing this with one of your clients this week. Um, <clears throat> full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see uh, the sun for a time. Now, this seems harsh. This is harsh. But you've got to remember, if you go back just a few years, this was actually Paul's experience that led him to faith in Christ. I believe that's what Paul's after here with the magician. Immediately, a mist of darkness fell upon him, and he, was, he went about seeking people to lead them by the hand. But the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, and he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, verse 13, as our shift happens, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. Now Paul. But Barnabas, up until this point, it was Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul. Paul steps up. This miracle occurs. It says, now Paul and his companions. See the shift? Now, why is that significant? John Mark is Barnabas's cousin. His cousin is no longer in charge of the team. Paul is now seen as the leader. When that happens, it says, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Just kind of a little side note. This shift occurs, becomes significant later. Maybe you've experienced a shift like this. You finally get a job. You graduate like Laurel. You get into your first job, and you go into the office, and your boss is not what you expected. Or those you work with aren't quite what you had hoped for. Um, I remember first job out of seminary, I was a youth pastor, and discovered after saying yes to the job that the previous youth pastor had been having an affair with one of the student's moms for three years. And the youth group, which was vibrant and alive and I was excited about being the leader of, went from 70 to four. And I thought, maybe I'm not called to be a youth pastor. And the, the struggle within this, or you finally get married, you have children, beautiful angels that they are, and, and then this happens, they become teenagers. And just a word of, encouragement to parents here, especially with old, younger kids, um, what happens at about age 14 is aliens, this is documented, <laughs> documented research, aliens come and suck out their brains. And they don't return them until they're about 25 years of age. And then they just snap out of it one day and they're like, oh, I love you. You're wonderful. You've taught me everything. And yeah, it happens. Shift happens. In chapter 15, this is our third point, chapter 15, and verse 36. Third point is the rest of the story, the rest of the story. If, um, because remember, conflict is inevitable and encourages us to keep moving and to grow. Well, in chapter 15, verse 36, says, and after some days, now let me give a little more background, what happened between this time is 
They finish mission number one. Great results. People come to faith in Christ. Miracles occur. Churches are planted. They come back two or three years later. They're, they're telling about the great deeds that have occurred. Just some great stuff has happened. And then they go to Jerusalem. They report that. They go and work in Antioch again for a few years. And then Paul goes to Barnabas. Notice who leads. In verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. But Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take them out, uh, take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. Now, I know that doesn't happen in churches today, but there was a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, his hometown area. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended uh, by the brothers of the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. He went up to his hometown area, and they spread out, they separate. And so there's this huge division, this huge division between them, which we saw the seeds of when Barnabas took the, uh, when Paul took the helm. So what's the rest of the story? Maybe you, you remember this guy, Paul Harvey. You know, Paul Harvey used to have this radio show, uh, and he would talk about the rest of the story. And it would usually start with some ordinary person that you had never heard of, and then these series of events occur, and you, he would link it with some major event in history that if it wasn't for this person, we wouldn't have had that event. And I would love for him to tell the rest of the story of this young lady, Bethany Hamilton. Bethany Hamilton, 13 years ago, when she was 13 years of age, was attacked in uh, Kauai, Hawaii, her hometown area, and by a tiger shark who took her left arm. And she was an aspiring surfer who wanted to be a pro surfer. And at 13 years of age, she had those dreams dashed. I mean, what chance could there possibly be for a 13-year-old girl with one arm to compete at a, the top level in the world? Well, last week, she was invited to Fiji as a wild card. And she's now married, has a kid. Um, she is, uh, loves Jesus with all of her heart, uses her story as a platform to tell people around the world about Christ. And she was invited in to Fiji. And this is a picture of her about three days ago in Fiji. And she actually, uh, let me just read this. This is, this is pretty phenomenal. Hamilton, a wild card, upset several competitors, including world number one, Tyler Wright. That had to feel good. <laughs> and registered exceptional performances on the way to her third place finish. The 11-time world champion Kelly Slater, who I watched last night win his heat, uh, who is the best surfer to ever surf, except, of course, Jesus, who walked on water. No, you know, uh, no board needed, no board needed. Anyone who isn't inspired, he said this, anyone who isn't inspired by Bethany Hamilton and her physical attributes after losing her arm to a tiger shark in Kauai some years ago should check their pulse. 
The hardship she overcomes to perform at the level she does in the ocean is arguably unparalleled in men's or women's sports. Amazing story. The rest of the story. What's the rest of the story for Barnabas and Paul? Well, there's one throwaway verse that's mentioned uh, a few years after the the, the conflict. About five years, we estimate. Um, In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6, uh, Paul says, you know, some of the apostles get to travel with their wives and they get paid to do what they do, but... He said, but Barnabas and I, are we the only ones who have to work for a living? You know, and he speaks of Barnabas in this positive light, uh, which indicates there had been a reconciliation. We know it further, though, by, by some key verses that are lit, written about 15 years after the conflict. In Philippians, I mean Philemon, chapter 1, verse 24, Paul refers to, to Mark as his fellow worker. I love the language there. It's not Barnabas and Paul. It's not Paul and Barnabas. He said, we're equals. Mark is my fellow worker. Just a great, great phrase there. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, about 20 some years, 22 or 3 years after the conflict, Paul says this, send Mark to me. He is very useful to me for the gospel. Now, How did that happen? Well, we know partly because of what Barnabas did in mentoring him. But there's another player. One of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, he refers to the same John Mark. And he says, Mark, my son. He had taken him in. I imagine that occurred when he left from the team. Barnabas and Paul continued to travel for some years. He goes back to Jerusalem. And this man that Tim told us about last week, who had denied Jesus three times, takes this young guy who's deserted the team and says, come on, let me help you. And they walk together. Had those people not been in his life, Barnabas, Peter, we wouldn't have the Gospel of Mark today, which was written by this same guy. Amazing, amazing rest of the story. Well, Not only do we have conflict in relationships, not only do we have external conflicts like sharks, uh, but there are internal conflicts that we each face. And the Bible refers to that conflict as, as by saying of us that we were enemies of God. Enemies of God. And in the chairs and on the stage this morning, every one of us fit in one of three categories of how we were enemies of God. One way of being an enemy of God is to live an immoral lifestyle. It's basically to take the Ten Commandments and the the commands of Scripture and say, I can't do that or I won't do that, and we live life for ourselves. Self-centered, pleasure being the focus, full on into hedonism. The other is the moralist. Now, the moralist thinks they're better than the immoral and loves to judge the immoral for their immorality. Oh, why would you have children in these days and times? Look how terrible the world is. Moralist. Moralism. And then there's a third category, uh, which is the religious. Now, religion can be defined real simply and very theologically. Um, 
you know, sorry for the difficult illustration here, but, you know, pat your head, rub your belly. Can you do it at the same time? I can't. Stand on one foot, spin around. That's kind of like religion. It's, it's this thing of follow a bunch of rituals to get right with a deity or with the meaning of alignment with life, if you're the four noble paths. And it's, it's this, this jump through a bunch of hoops. That fits every one of us, doesn't it? Immoral, moral, religious. Unfortunately, all three approaches fall short of the glory of God. They won't resolve the conflict between you and God. There's a fourth category, fortunately. And it's God's invitation for us to be his friend. And he invites us into a friendship, a love relationship with him. You know, if you didn't know the end of the story, you would really think it ended when a 33-year-old was nailed to a wooden cross, placed in a grave. End of story. But three days later, we know the rest of the story. He rose from the dead, bodily, physically, literally, rose from the dead. Never happened before or since for one who was resurrected and didn't die again, happened for Jesus. That's the rest of the story. And his invitation to you this morning is, it's, it's kind of like lifting the white flag of surrender. And that's what I want to invite you to do this morning. If you do not know him personally as your friend, to say, God, I surrender to you. Forgive me for seeking my own way, whether it was through religion, through immorality, through morality, They all fall short. And to pray a simple prayer like the guy on the video said in Alpha, and that prayer that I encourage folks to pray just goes something like this. God, I give everything I know about me, the good, the bad, the ugly, to everything I know about you. Or if you need it even more simply, Jesus, I surrender. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.